learn geometry in part through astronomy, right? So stargazing and, and, and learning things like celestial navigation. If you think about, for example, how interdisciplinary something like celestial navigation is, right? It's historical. You know, you begin to understand just what a feat it was for people to learn to circumnavigate the globe. It's mathematical and it's, it's natural, philosophical or scientific all at the same time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and this is part two of my interview with Dr. Michael Hanby. In part one, we got into some of the flaws with modern education, and we talked about what classical education is and how it offers um, more of a unified vision of not only what a human person is, but what the goals of education are and how that really stands against the modern notion of the purpose of education. And then in this episode, we talk more about the nuts and bolts of a classical curriculum. Um, he starts off by sharing the origin story of the St. Jerome's Academy. It was an ordinary Catholic parochial school that, like many Catholic schools in the country, um, was financially not doing well. And so it had kind of a rebranding um, by adopting a classical curriculum, and he was instrumental in developing that curriculum. So he talks a little bit about that origin story, and then he gets into what the curriculum entails. Um, and as a former teacher, um, I definitely geek out over curriculum. And I think it's good to understand that curriculum, it, you know, it certainly involves the content of what you're learning. It also involves the methods of how you're going to be taught that content. Um, but then ideally, it should also be embedded within like kind of a, an overall philosophy of education. And so, you know, in a sense, you know, no matter where you go to school, you're going to have the subjects of, of math and science and history and English and whatnot. Um, but there should be some kind of like coherent, guiding, unifying principle to the curriculum itself. Like ideally, the sub subjects should not just be like these fragmented things, uh, but they should they should work together. And so he explains that um, and how they're able to do that with the St. Jerome's curriculum. So I hope you enjoy this episode, um, even if you're not a teacher or not an educator. Um, I think it's enlightening to kind of think back on your own education, um, because here's the thing, like school, you know, you know, we go from elementary, middle school, high school, college, maybe graduate school. And so it's always like these periods of time where you're kind of working your way towards a graduation, working your way towards a next level. Um, and it kind of makes it seem like education is just this temporary thing when, you know, it sounds cliche, but ideally we should be lifelong learners because the world is fascinating. Um, and there's so much that we don't understand and there's so much that we don't know about the past, the present, um, you know, the physical, the spiritual. And so if the ultimate goal of, of education is to, you know, contemplate truth, to admire beauty, to grow in virtue, then, you know, education is not something that's limited to, to school. So hopefully this gives you lots of things to think about. Um, make sure you're following me on Instagram at The Crab and the Cross, following me on Twitter slash X at Mary Rose Depp. Uh, I'd love for you to leave me a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts or a five-star review on Spotify. And you can also become a supporter on Spotify. Okay. Now, here's part two of my interview with Dr. Michael Hanby. I, I guess, first of all, I mean, so your, your background is more so in um, philosophy and religion, but you're one of the founding members of this curriculum. So how did that come about? Oh, wow. Well, that's a, a really interesting story. I'll try not to make it too long a story. Uh, yeah. We could use up all of our time just <laughs> talking about that uh, with a number of moving parts. I mean, I guess you could say that the immediate cause was that I was uh, a father of then two young boys um, at St. Jerome Parish in Hyattsville, Maryland. Uh, at a moment, they were on the precipice. My oldest was on the precipice of going to school or being school aged. Um, at the moment that uh, the parish school was put on a list of schools slated for closure uh, by the archdiocese. 
and given a finite amount of time to try and do something to save itself uh, before before being closed. So that's what the immediate occasion for my getting involved in this uh, was. Um, there are some background things from my experience that that contributed to this. I mean, I had by this point spent probably a dozen years um, teaching the products of American primary and secondary yeah. education as college freshmen, and I had a pretty keen sense of what where I thought it's. Uh, it, its failures were, and that spanned both uh, my experience teaching largely parochial school kids at Villanova uh, and public school or Protestant school kids at, at, at Baylor. I had also, um, the, the, the funny thing about St. Jerome as a parish at the time uh, is that it was full of young Catholic families who did not send their kids to the parish school, but who homeschooled them. Okay. And several cooperative efforts had... Um, uh, developed out of that, uh, a couple of people were trying to launch a school and it asked me to get involved. And so it, ironically, I had written a kind of philosophy of education paper for one of these that was meant to serve as a kind of orienting document uh, for one of these efforts at the time that the St. Jerome fate uh, was pronounced, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to the parish-wide meeting describing you know, the process of uh, uh, consultation uh, to, to save or to close the school. And at that time, uh, the school had a new principal, uh, Mary Pat Donahue, who now works for the USCCB, who's worked for the ICLE, but was at that point uh, the, the new principal who was in charge of either seeing this thing shuttered or, 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 or doing something about it. And I didn't know Mary Pat uh, very well. We've since become uh, very good friends, but we were merely acquaintances at the time. But I wrote to her after this meeting and said, I'd like to try and do something to help save the school. Um, but I'm not sure it's actually worth saving uh, in its <laughs> present form. And if you're willing to or are interested in trying something, you know, a more radical experiment, then I'll do whatever I can. And I sent her that paper that I had written. Yeah. Uh, she then um, pulled together a committee of, of, of four or five of us, including other parents, uh, some teachers at uh, various schools, about uh, a graduate student at, at CUA, and we became the, the St. Jerome Curriculum Committee, who set out really uh, having no idea what we were doing or what we wanted to do, and spinning our wheels for a number of weeks and many late night meetings and uh, what have you, before uh, finally coming up with what would become the, the St. Jerome educational plan, which was really a blueprint um, for a, a new school uh, rooted in uh, uh, a well, uh, what I think is a pretty deep and comprehensive philosophy of education. So a lot of which stemmed from my own experience uh, as an academic right. um, and is analyzing the culture as well as this experience, uh, you know, teaching college freshmen and so forth. Mary Pat took on this, what became, I guess, a 120 page document because it contained a kind of outline for not only a rationale and an overall approach, but for each of the, the K through eight years of the school. And she just accepted it and said, right, this is what we're going to do. Uh, took it on board. There were a thousand ways in which and reasons why it could have failed. Yeah. Um, none of which came to fruition. Uh, and over the course of a few years, um, we managed to turn the school around. It's the only one of those schools that didn't close. Um, one of the few schools in the archdiocese that annually has a waiting list now. Wow. Um, it has become a magnet for um, uh, Catholics in the area and young Catholic families moving to Hyattsville and joining the parish. Wow. I don't even know all of the new families who have, you know, emerged over the last decade. And um, the plan itself has been, I don't want to say exported, but appropriated, adopted uh, by other schools. And it, it, there's a lot of flexibility built into it to, to adopt it. I mean, it's more of a set of principles than a, than a curriculum, properly speaking, uh, to adopt it to their own circumstances, to their own needs, to the coming online of, of materials that didn't really exist. You know, um, 10 years ago, uh, there have been some wonderful things done in, in that regard. And so, you know, while there's always a difference between, you know, the platonic form of the good and, yeah. and, and, and life in the cave, I mean, no school's perfect, and that includes both SJA and SJI, um, 
it's been a wonderful turnaround and uh, a, a great experience. It was a great experience for our children. We put them in the school. Many of the homeschool families then put their children in the school. Yeah. Um, and um, it's, it, it's been, it's been wonderful uh, and, you know, somewhat miraculous actually. Yeah. So a few just practical questions. One, was the pastor involved with this, the pastor at St. Jerome's or was it a totally like, parish-led, uh, parishioner-led initiative? Right. Um, well, the, the pastor at the time is now out in, um, is it North Beach? Uh, oh, along okay. the, the, the Eastern Shore, Father Father James Stack, a wonderful, oh, okay. uh, uh, a wonderful prayerful man uh, without uh, an ounce of pride or clerical ambition. Um, and so while it was very much uh, a lay-driven initiative, um, he was wholly supportive of it uh, and um, uh, unthreatened by it uh, and lent his, his weight and authority to it. And, of course, we were very deferential, you know, in, with respect to the chain of command and, and, you know, recognizing that he has the ultimate decision on, on many of these matters. So there were none of those um, issues that one often gets in, in Catholic parishes when the laity take initiative. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, it was, it was a very cooperative effort and he was, he, he was wholly supportive of it. Uh, it also led, um, uh, and augmented something that he, uh, wanted to do that we, that was taking place at the same beginning to take place at the same time in the parish. And that's, um, uh, liturgical reform. Mm. Um, you know, if you, if you have a school that is dedicated to, uh, uh, cultivating the love of, of, of beauty and a sacramental sense of reality, you need a liturgy that does the same thing. Right. Um, and those two things complemented themselves. You know, there was a, a, a new, uh, uh, shall we say, more um, reverent form of the Novus Ordo yeah. uh, in, installed at the time. And the two things have, have complemented each other so well. One of the beautiful things about the school has been the development of uh, a children's music program uh, where they learn um, uh, the the hymns of the church, where they begin to develop uh, uh, skills and polyphony. And it's actually produced a number of of singers uh, 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 who are really um, quite talented and and some who sing um, semi-professionally. And it all developed really organically. so no, the pastor was great. Um, yeah. Father Stack was great. Um, uh, Father Scott Hahn has since come on board. I guess what seven or eight years ago, and um, uh, has continued to support the school. Uh, you know, wasn't so sure about this. Uh, uh, I'll put it in quotes: classical education yeah. business at first, but saw that it worked and has really come to 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 see the beauty of it and has done a number of great things for the school himself. And so. Um, yeah, you couldn't do it, obviously, without um, uh, support from your pastor and um, ideally, you know, support from the archdiocese. Right. So you, you come up with this new um, kind of plan for the curriculum and just the overall ethos of the school. Did you also have to cut the, the current teachers and replace them with new teachers who were more trained in that tradition, or did you take the current teachers and just kind of mold them? Well, I mean, it is an archdiocesan school with archdiocesan personnel policies, right? So you can't just, if you were a private school and you wanted to do something so radical, I suppose you could say, right, everyone hand in their resignation, we'll re-interview you and so forth. That's not how it went. Yeah. Um, uh, Over time, the situation worked itself out. Okay. You know, and, and, and we, we built into, I mean, what was unique about the, the refounding of St. Jerome's is we knew that there were some of these strictures and difficulties in place and that there would require a lot of conversion. There would require the conversion of the existing faculty and staff. There would require the conversion of the, the families who were already in the school who hadn't necessarily chosen it on that basis. Yeah. You know, to explain that um, this is really what you, you, there's no need to fear this. Um, this isn't political, this is educational, um, that this will be a better education for your children and therefore what you really wanted for them all along. 
Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, it required quite an effort to do that. And with the teachers, you know, the same thing. So we gave uh, a set of principles um, uh, by which to uh, adopt this. Um, and a number of principles. And one of them is, I mean, part of what we acknowledge is that even those of us who created this plan, um, none of us had the educations, were the beneficiaries of the kind of education that we aspired to for our children. Yeah. Right. So we're all beginning from a place that is fragmented. And so part of what uh, one of the principles that we gave to the teachers is, you know, what you don't know won't hurt you, uh, but what you don't want to know will. Mm. Right. And that gave them room. So, so to, you know, so one of the peculiarities about the SJA curriculum was, is that we essentially cycled through the history of the world twice and each year of the curriculum is is uh, dedicated to a certain period of history. And so this would organize uh, the approach to various subjects. So we had a Greek year, a Roman year, a medieval year, a modern year, an American year. We basically okay. oh, wow. do that each time. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the third grade teacher, um, uh, uh, actually who was, was Mormon at the time, wow. <laughs> didn't whole lot about the middle ages which was sure. what she was responsible for right <laughs> so you know it was it was trial and error and there were a lot of you know odd fits to begin with and um you know it was a much better school five or six years on than it was in the beginning mm -hmm. um but we had an aspiration we had some principles we had some suggestions of of, of, of themes and things that you could do we worked on faculty development um we tried to bring people on board and over time some of the teachers decided they loved this and loved it more. There are a number of, of people from the original faculties who are still there mm -hmm. and who will rave about what this did for them and how this liberated them to teach in a different way and to do things they'd always wanted to do. There were others who had decided that it wasn't for them yeah. uh, over time. And so, you know, we had the, the, the luxury of, 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 of time to get it right. Yeah. And these things worked themselves out over a number of years. Yeah. And when you made this transition, did it affect the tuition cost at all? Well, that's not my area, okay. but I don't think so. I mean, I think that, um, uh, you know, what the, the school can charge is pretty much set, whether that's okay. set within the parish or set by the archdiocese. I don't know, but thankfully I don't have to, <laughs> I, can, I can just think about what we ought to do. I don't have to think about what it costs or right. how to pay for it. Okay. Okay. Uh, but but the the goal was to keep it affordable. Right. Um, to keep it affordable for families in the parish, many of which are quite large and would be wanting to send multiple kids. To keep it affordable for the students who were already there, some of whom came from underprivileged backgrounds. Um, and while I'm sure there were incremental increases in the cost of tuition, just to, that one might would have had anyway, just right. to keep pace with things. Right. Um. I, it, it didn't mean a doubling or a tripling of it, yeah. and uh, uh, it, it didn't. The doing this didn't substantially increase the uh, the cost either of doing business or to the families. Okay, okay. So, okay, so let's talk about the the actual kind of on the ground curriculum of of Saint Jerome's Academy. Um, I know you mentioned that you you have these five epochs of history that you you frame everything in. Um, you know, how else can you describe the specifics of, of what they're learning in there? Is it, is it K through eight or? K through eight. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, obviously the things that one does in, in, in middle school are, are, are different from the things that, uh, uh, you know, you do in kindergarten and in first grade. Right. But, you know, we talk about a, 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 a twofold, uh, integration of the curriculum. Okay. Um, a subject of integration in that we want, um, uh, the kids to concurrently develop um, certain skills and dispositions that will serve them well in life and across the curriculum. So a capacity for uh, wonder, mm. um, for memory, mm -hmm. um, for observation. We want them to, to be able to see and to notice things yeah. that uh, you might ordinarily pass over. Um, uh, uh, a wonder and a certain delight in um, and in the capacity to recognize um, relatively better and worse things, an attraction to beauty, um, a capacity for um, the language, 
um, uh, both written and spoken. Um, uh, and, um, and of course, uh, numeracy as well, uh, but not just numeracy in terms of um, uh, basic math skills, but also the recognition of numerical patterns in, 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 in the world and, uh, and in um, human built things. Okay. So that's subjectively what we hope to achieve. What, you know, the, the yeah. kinds of qualities of soul we hope to, 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 to cultivate in, in young people. Uh, the decision is to do that in a sense precisely by immersing them uh, in, in, in this history and its, in it, and its production. So, um, you know, we integrate the, the study of Roman history with uh, in age appropriate levels, right? You know, with, um, uh, with literature. Uh, with a look at architecture and 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 art, um, with their play time, you know. I mean, you know, yeah. one of the things about fun things about um, uh, you know the Roman year or the Greek year or the the medieval year is the you know the parties and feasts and things <laughs> that you can the costumes you can wear yeah, and the things that you can yeah. have you know in the in first, second, and third grade and and and, and those kinds of things. Um, the integration of the study of Christianity with the study of these historical periods. So that, you, so that there's not such a thing simply as history and then church history. Yeah. Right. There's the history of the world in which Christianity plays uh, a, a, a really kind of decisive role. Uh, in the study of nature, one of the things that we really emphasize, um, um, particularly in the early years, I mean, we want them to understand, you know, to, to be able to observe, to classify to see living things in their living environments um, uh, before they begin later to dissect them and take them apart and analyze them and learn, you know, how, what things component parts are, you know, so you don't begin teaching nature to third graders by teaching them um, uh, what cells are. You begin by getting them to think about what, what characterizes an animal, what differentiates a plant from an animal. Yeah. What differentiates different kinds of animals from each other, and to observe and, and, and think about these things. One of the things that I think is a, a great way um, to teach the study of nature to young children um, is to teach them to draw. Hmm. You know, teach them the study of nature through the study of art, because to learn to draw is to learn to see. Yeah. Right. To yeah, learn to look yeah. at things. To really understand. You know how the various patterns, exterior patterns on an animal cohere with one another, mm-hmm. right? Both sort of for the animal to reveal itself, but also for it to conceal itself or to see what, how finely grained and intricate the design of, of a leaf or a flower is. Yeah. You know, they're also learning, they're also learning to, to appreciate beauty at the same time. Right. And in, and in a world in which, you know, virtual reality you know, their kids are put in front of screens and, yeah. and have communicated to them, uh, you know, all the time that, that virtual reality is better than reality. And, you know, to immerse them in the world of the senses. Yeah. Um, and to, um, and, 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 you know, the study of music uh, the same way. Right. So if you, if you are studying the Middle Ages to begin to think about, you know, the, the, the movement from chant to polyphony and what that signifies, for example, or the movement from a more iconographic to uh, uh, sort of, for lack of a better way of putting it, sort of realistically representational art. Mm-hmm. You know, what change in worldview, what change in vision? Yeah. Um, it's not just a difference in technique. There's a, a whole different way of conceiving things that's underlying that change. To begin to, to get at that, and obviously, you know, the ways that one does that for a middle schooler or a high schooler are very different. Right. Uh, than for uh, a third grader. For a third grader, you want them to simply um, uh, begin to, um, uh, to to learn to remember things, mm-hmm. uh, to begin to be immersed in um, uh, good stories with the language well rendered. I'll, I'll tell you a little anecdote here. I mean, um, in in the third grade, my my oldest son and two of his classmates decided they were going to. Uh, uh, write a book, uh, and it, they, they would pass around like during recess or in their study periods or whatever. They would pass around this this composition book. And each take turns writing a chapter of it, and it was modeled on something like 
Lord of the Rings yeah. or, or, or Narnia or something like that. They were writing their own their own fantasy. Uh, and I noticed uh, in my son's chapters, every third he would be. I guess we were reading a lot of the Chronicles of Narnia, okay. and every third sentence would begin presently. <laughs> you know, such as that's what happened. But in a way, so the, part of the idea is that you learn to, to you learn to write, uh, you learn to use the language well by immersing yourself in the language spoken and written. With. Mm-hmm. And if you read enough of these stories or had enough of them read to you, you'll 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 learn to speak and you'll you'll begin to think and adopt these idioms for yourself. So pedagogically speaking, part of what's really um, emphasized in uh, those early grades is just imitation. Yeah. Um, and imitation through immersion in things that are of a, a, a higher quality, uh, culturally significant. You know, one of the greatest things, this is outside the school, but it's an example of the kind of things the school would do. One of the, the best experiences I had with my own children uh, was the experience over the course of a couple of winters of reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy aloud by the fireplace twice. Yeah. Wow. Um, that might be the best education they've actually received or will receive. But, right. you know, but what, what are the wonderful things about that? And we would talk about it. And I mean, it really sort of formed their imaginative world to the point that when my youngest son uh, went and saw The Hobbit mm-hmm. at about six or seven years old, he walked out because the elves didn't look like they were supposed to look in his imagination. <laughs> oh my um, gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I, mean, I was actually really, that was a proud moment for me, but I can remember when it came time to talk about, you know, the possibility of having a phone uh-huh. um, and, and what it would mean and what a sort of mighty and powerful tool this was, you know, the, the analogies to the ring of power, mm. uh, uh, really suggested themselves. And this helped yeah. form sort of the moral world out of which, you know, we, we thought, and we're really trying to replicate that kind of experience, um, you know, yeah. in the school. Yeah. Um, so that's the, at the elementary school level at the high school level is more, um, you know, one of the things that I think really is beautiful about the Institute, St. Jerome Institute curriculum is that we've given a lot of thought to what it means to be a, 15 to 18 year old, Mm. you know, and and how life is different for you, you know, as you begin to sort of um, turn from home toward the world, uh, begin to look for your place in it. There are certain questions that should be emerging to you naturally if they haven't been, if your education hasn't killed them off. Yeah. And um, really struck. So one of the differences between the SJI and the SJA curriculum is that the SJI curriculum is each year is not studied around, a, it's not organized around a historical period. In some ways, we span ancient to modern each year. Mm-hmm. It's organized around a, a, a fundamental question, mm-hmm. right? Um, what is nature? Uh, what is the, 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 the city or political community? Um, uh, who is the human being? You know, and we think about the answers that have been the different cultures at different periods in our history have given to those questions through their literature, their philosophy, their art, their architecture, uh, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Um, and try and think through those questions for ourselves with the guise of the tradition as guides. And of course, underlying and built into, it, it's interesting that we don't differentiate who is God mm. um, as, as the, the subject of a, of a given year, because that question is ever present inside of all the others. Yeah. yeah. So that's always there. Right. I don't know. I've, I've kind of lost track of your original question, so I don't know if I've I answered know, well, it. Well, I was just asking, I mean, kind of just the, on paper, like, what are they learning? Like, what is the, what is the curriculum that they can kind of, ex, you know, expect, or I guess the parents would expect. Um, but, but I think, I mean, I love the way you answer the question because I think it is, it is so important to start with with something broader, to start with the idea of cultivating wonder and appreciation for truth and beauty and, and all that. And and I can think about, like, you know, the most memorable I, – I think – I mean, I went to public elementary school. I think maybe it was early enough, you know, being in the early 90s, that, like, it wasn't probably as corrupted as, as it is nowadays. But I do remember having a lot of those experiences. You know, I remember being in kindergarten, and whatever story we were reading, we were then going to – act out something from that book. So if we were reading Green Eggs and Ham, Dr. Seuss, we're going to make Green Eggs and Ham. If we're reading three, um, you know, Goldilocks and Three Bears, we're making porridge and we're, we're doing all these things. And then in, 
you know, first grade, I remember everybody gets a caterpillar and we, we, we feed them and then we let them make their cocoon and then we, we release the butterflies and, you know, just all these things that it's, that's the way to start with learning science or, or learning to read is just to immerse yourself in a story, make it come alive or to use all of your observational skills to see something in nature happening, un- unfolding as it does. And then as you're older, you can go back and analyze and say, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, you learn some things, you learn terminology, you learn uh, what things are called. But then as you get older, you can go back and say, well, how does this actually work? And, and, and on the, you know, the most molecular level, what's going on? And then on the taxo- taxonomical level, what's, what's going on? Um, so, I, I mean, I think that's the, the right place to start. One of the things, yeah, well, even, and even at the high school level, I mean, I, I think we do an inordinate amount of field work, hmm. right? Our, our students chart the migration patterns of, of, of birds, wow. for example. Yeah. But they begin by going to the Patuxent Wildlife Refuge and, and actually observing them, right? Yeah. They, they learn uh, geometry in part through um, uh, astronomy, Oh, I love that. Right, so yeah. stargazing and, and, and learning things like, you know, celestial navigation. Yeah. Uh, and recognizing. so, I mean, if you think about what, what it is, if you think about, for example, um, how interdisciplinary something like celestial navigation is, right? It's historical. Yeah. Right? It's, 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 it's you know, you begin to understand just what a feat it was uh, for people to learn to circumnavigate the globe. Um, it's mathematical, um, and it's it's natural, philosophical, or scientific all at the same time. Right. So you know you can you can craft uh, a curriculum and you can craft lessons um, with a particular accent on any of those that are that remain interdisciplinary at the same time and show actually that um, there are real geometrical patterns in nature and that this form of knowledge has. Um, you know, real world applications. And you can begin also to extrapolate then, I mean, I don't know anything about this, but fortunately it's not my area, right. um, but you can begin to extrapolate towards how it is that much more complex navigation systems, by contrast, operate. Right. So, so even, um, at, even at the high school level, I, we, we think that it's important uh, to begin with holes rather than parts, mm. uh, with reality rather than formulas, and yes. to integrate these things in, in in this way. The other thing that we do, and that we have found important to do, and we begin to to um, uh, to, to do this, although the students don't necessarily know that this is what they're undergoing at the at the elementary school level um, when they when they read literature or when they study nature is. Um, Part of the study of science ought to be to think philosophically about the nature and limits of science itself and the kind of knowledge that it is. Yeah. Um, so that one doesn't end up with uh, a reductive understanding either of nature, right? That human beings, for example, are just accidental aggregations of meaningless cells uh, or, 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 or genes, um, but also so that one doesn't end up with a bifurcated understanding where Science tells us what the world is. It has the sole authority for everything we call "quote unquote" knowledge. Yeah. Um, and everything else is mere subjective opinion. I mean, if you're going to have to have, if you're going to have a reintegration reintegration of faith and life, you have to have a reintegration of science and mathematics into a more comprehensive understanding of reason. Mm. This is something Pope Benedict understood very well. Yeah. You know, so that's what we are aspiring to. Right. Uh, well, and I think that's why so many um, high schoolers, I, again, I can think of myself in school. I can think of my former students. That's why they're so frustrated with our education is because it's so disconnected. You know, I remember like geometry was like a light bulb moment for me because I felt like I was, I finally, A, like I knew what I was studying. Like we were literally studying a triangle. We were literally studying a circle and how, you know, the angles fit together. And when you slice it through what happens but then we also did like the proofs. So you can see like, here's the general principle and you can narrow it down to get the conclusion. And that was, you know, that was a light bulb moment for me. Whereas, you know, you go into an algebra class and it's like, all right, today we're going to talk about factoring or today we're going to talk about, um, you know, the quadratic formula. Here's how you plug something in and get it on the other side. But you have no context for what you're doing, how it connects with 
reality um, because math is ultimately, you know, a way of explaining like physical reality. But I don't think people, I don't, I don't think students and sometimes even to a certain extent, their teachers are either aware of that consciously or explaining it consciously. And so it just seems like here's a random skill that you'll never use and you just have to basically be obedient to the formula. Yeah, and that's the way the vast majority of students, you know, it's one of the reasons we have a crisis in, in science and math education is because I think that's the way the vast majority of students um, uh, approach the subject is the way that it's taught. I mean, high school science students do very little science. Mm. You know, they don't repeat the experiments or, or discover for themselves the experiments whereby, you know, you can calculate the size and shape of the earth, for example. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and now you have um, people who are flat, flat earthers, right? That's like a new right, well, Yeah. But I mean, one of the, one of the things that I think is most bold and creative about the SJI um, uh, curriculum is the approach to what we're calling natural philosophy that integrate, you know, and it, it completely scrambles, um, uh, the the traditional ways of sort of separating the, the the scientific and mathematical disciplines from each other, and because it's that obviously, um, unsurprisingly, that's probably the thing that prospective parents get most nervous about. But mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, and granted, it's a small sample size at this point. Um, but I just learned today, in fact, um, that of our how many classes have we graduated? Two or three classes. Um, at this school, most of them in college are going into STEM fields. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, presumably with a more humanistic uh, uh, formation underlying it, so right, they won't. Right. Hopefully, they won't lose themselves in right. um, in that. But you know, so the idea that that the way that um, uh, science and math education has been constructed um, in industrialized education, for lack of a better way of putting it, is the best or only way to impart this knowledge. I, you know, I I think we're proving that to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good you brought that up too, because I think one of the criticisms I hear of a classical education is that the students are, uh, you know, they graduate with no understanding of math and science. And so they're kind of stunted. Um, and, and I mean, it shouldn't be that way. Not that you have to be learning principles of engineering, you know, as a, as a junior in high school, but, um, you know, again, if, if, if all, all, all truth is connected, um, then, you know, learning one thing, learning history, learning theology, learning philosophy shouldn't cut you off from, from learning math and science. It should integrate them together. No, I completely agree. And that, that, that has been our aspiration and we're really, you know, proud of what we're, we're, we're doing on that front. At the same time, you know, attempting to rethink how to, how to undertake math and science education is, a, is, is both a daunting yeah. and um, uh, challenging thing. And one, one, arguably one of the, the faults or difficulties confronting a lot of so-called classical schools is really um, the incompleteness of that effort. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes what you'll get is um, uh, sort of a conventional science and math education tacked on yeah. extrinsically yeah, to, yeah, yeah. To, to what you're doing. And, you know, we are attempting something else, but with the, the understanding that uh, we want the students who come through this to be um, not just competent, but to excel Mm-hmm. Um, in these fields um, in college and as um, and if they choose to make that their their um, uh, you know their life's pursuit yeah no absolutely um, and, and again just as I was saying that theology opened up a love of history for me like philosophy opened up a love of science for me because again all I was able to see and, and math too actually I was able to see them as studying the structure of reality just as philosophy is you know, most broadly the structure of reality. And so, um, yeah, there doesn't have to be this anti-math, anti-science bias in, in liberal arts education. And I think if there is, something is wrong at a more fundamental level. I completely agree. And conversely, there doesn't have to be this anti-philosophical, anti-theological bias in science and right, math right, education. Right, 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 absolutely. Right, which, which tends to be, I mean, we've, we've asked those disciplines to take the place of these questions we're no longer answering and yeah. these ways that we're no longer thinking. Yeah. And you end up with a reduced 
um, caricature of both, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, so again, it goes back to the point of, of, of um, what happens when, um, what does the entire educational vision look like when you're organizing principles um, that which confers unity on study as a whole are philosophical and theological. Uh, and our argument and belief is that it deepens everything else um, done right, done properly, rather than the other way around. Yeah. So is the St. Jerome's curriculum meant to be something that other schools around the country could take as a model and create their own version of? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be that way, especially the original SGA plan in the sense that we did this with the idea we're going to create a blueprint that any, that's portable that anybody can use. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, by the time we finished it, we realized we had something mm-hmm. uh, that could be appropriated in that way. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that it can be, and, and there are, in fact, at, particularly with SGA because it's been around longer. Yeah. Uh, but we believe the same thing will occur with SJI as well, is that there are, in fact, a number of, quote unquote, St. Jerome schools around the country. That is to say, schools who have taken this program and adopted it themselves. Yeah. And, and, and one of the reasons and adapted it for themselves. Um, and, and one of the reasons that I think that's that's possible um, is that it really is. um as much or more a philosophy and a set of principles and a clear articulation of the goal yeah. as it is um, a curriculum. You know, it's not simply a series of lesson plans. Yeah. And it's designed in such a way that as other things become available, um, as you try things out and decide that this works better than that, um, you know, that students do better with uh, Aristotle's ethics than they do with his politics or what have you. Yeah. Um, that you can make those uh, adjustments internally. Yeah. Uh, and that's the case for both schools, both the, the in, in both plans, both the K through eight uh, and the high school, which hasn't really been, I mean, we're still completing it and, 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 and filling it out ourselves as the school comes fully online, um, which it now pretty much is. Uh, after which I suspect it will be ad- adapted in the same way. But yes, the answer is, is yes. However, the thing that I would all, I would caution against, um, I mean, if you ask me what it is that that accounts for um, the success of the SJI and SJA programs, and what it is that differentiates them um, uh, from a lot of what's on offer, is that it's not simply an out of the box of curriculum, mm, yeah, or out of the box program, yeah. Um, it is a philosophy. But a philosophy requires that the people who do it think, <laughs> think <laughs> yeah. philosophically, continue yeah. to think philosophically about what they're doing. It's not just a technique um, or a, a, another out-of-the-box uh, uh, set of lesson plans that one should just be able to apply. Yeah. And where it's going to work, it will work because the people who have adapted it have adapted the philosophy as their own, have internalized it, who have 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 taken on the goal and continue in their own school's way of life of thinking about how can we continue to do this better yeah. and what does it mean to do this? And that, and that involves, you know, also, you know, cultural judgments. I mean, one of the, one of the critiques I would have of the history and system of Catholic education, I think, um, is that there hasn't been, it hasn't included a deep enough analysis of the historical period and the culture in which we find ourselves, hmm. which is always a factor in what it means to educate. Yeah. Right. And, and that's an inherently philosophical endeavor. So the people who take these programs on and take that endeavor on for themselves, I think will have, will have great success with it. And their schools will bear a resemblance to, but in some ways look very different from ours. Yeah. And, and in a way, the, 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 the structure of the program allows for that. But when we set out, we, sure, we, we, we certainly didn't, you know, we were just trying to save our own school right, to begin right, with. Right. Yeah. You might not know the answer to this, but do you see what your approach is as fundamentally different from what the Chesterton Academies are doing? Um, or do you see them as, you know, different iterations of the same thing? Or do you see any issues in the way the Chesterton has 
you know, the one, the one, the one thing that weirds me out about them is it's almost like this franchise model of like, you know, Catholic education. And it seems kind of like you were saying, like sort of an out of the box curriculum. I, I don't know. You might have more insights than I do though. Yeah. I mean, gosh, it's been a while. I, I, I'm what five years on from writing out the SJI, working on the SJI curriculum and 10 years out from SJA. And the last time I studied the, the, the Chesterton curriculum in any depth was when I was doing that. So I'm a little bit removed from okay. it. It's not fresh yeah. in my mind and I'm reluctant to, to speak authoritatively on it. I mean, I, I think they're doing a lot of good things. I don't begrudge them their success. In fact, I, I, I encourage it. Um, I know a lot of people who are involved with Chesterton schools and no doubt right? There will be uh, uh, similarities, right? I mean, it's not like we've discovered new platonic dialogues that no one else has found before. Maybe so, there's, some, there's some lost ones, right? So Yeah. I mean, what I think makes um, uh, the SJA and SJI approach perhaps different is, first of all, it is more philosophy and less a, 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 box set, mm-hmm. right, in the way that you were describing. You know, you don't just pull the SJI, correct? You, you've still got to make judgments about, I mean, we our teachers in schools would certainly be happy to care what books they read in a given year and in a given seminar and and, and what their uh, success with this and that were and how they've, how they've adopted it over the years. But we don't have, you know, aren't saying, okay, in your humanities, I'm talking about the high school now, in your humanities seminar uh, in the second year, you're going to read this part of Augustine's confession, this platonic dialogue, you know, um, uh, this medieval thinker, et cetera, you know. Um, so you'll probably have to do a bit more work with us to figure out um, substantively what your courses will actually cover. Yeah. What I think differentiates us on the other side philosophically is um, the recognition of uh, um well, the historical judgments that underlie it, right? I mean, we always sort of begin with the ancients and move through the moderns, mm-hmm. thereby displacing the centrality of the present, mm-hmm. right? And, and and the centrality of the American perspective, because we want to, to relativize. Uh, and this is one of the ironies, right, of you know, the question you were asking before about Western civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as if contemporary kids and contemporary schools over-identify uh, with Western civilization, in my experience, most students are woefully ignorant yeah. of, of their own tradition and their own history, which leads to a kind of absolutization of the present, mm. right? Present values, present judgments, present culture. Yeah. We want to relativize that. Yeah, yeah. We want students to be able to form a critical judgment of their own, the, the ideas that they take for granted, on the basis of the tradition, on the basis of their development, on the basis of a, of a more independent questioning about, about the nature of things. And so, you know, the philosophical judgments informing this curriculum reflect themselves in the structure of things in the way that we move historically in, in, in each year. And I think one of the things that really differentiates the SJI high school curriculum is the way that the questions, you know, what is the human being? What is the good life? What is nature? You know, organize uh, the the inquiry for an entire year across the subjects. I think that's quite unique and different. So even though we'll read many of the same books, for example, at the high school level, um, the organizing principles that guide the reading and that structure which readings are grouped together um, won't be the same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think one of my concerns is that, you know, because our culture is so secular um, and so, like you said, disoriented and and disconnected from our roots, that sometimes these conservative movements or these, you know, movements to kind of go back to a classical way of thinking can almost just become reactionary in a sense that it's like, well, let's just indoctrinate people the other way. And let's, you know, make sure they know that, like, Christianity is true and, Aristotle and Plato are the fundamentals of, of Western philosophy, and they need to just accept that almost de fide and, and, and reject whatever the moderns are. And, and it's like they're kind of getting the right ideas, but you don't want it to just become this, like, I mean, almost ends justify the means. Like, you come out there with the right opinions, but you haven't really done the, 
the groundwork to um, assenting to those? No, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to name any names, but I, I certainly agree with uh, that assessment and that, that risk. And, you know, we have sought not to, to be uh, uh, reactionary, not, but, but simple for a number of reasons, right? I mean, it's not as if there aren't um, genuine gains and achievements of the modern world, right. uh, both scientifically and technically, but even culturally with respect to our understanding of, of, of however different for example, a, a modern understanding of freedom and an ancient understanding of freedom might be. Yeah. Um, uh, the modern understanding of freedom helps cast or draw out aspects of the older understanding that, that might have been underdeveloped in the tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not as if there's not a, you know a, a complex gain there that needs to be sorted through. Um, and on top of that, you know, I think there's a tendency to mistake, um, and I think Catholic Catholic education of all varieties is uh, vulnerable to this yeah. um, to mistake education for catechesis. Mm. Yeah. Right. I mean, it doesn't do any good to give kids the answers to questions they aren't asking. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of, uh, you know, um, the, the, the list of true propositions, which we're asking them to memorize right. and interpret the world through right. um, isn't likely to penetrate very deep and, mm-hmm. and sustain them for a lifetime. Yeah. You know, so part of what we're seeking to do, I mean, obviously we believe um, that the, the Catholic tradition provides the truest and most satisfying and complete um, answers to the fundamental human questions. Yeah. You know, that, that God has answered those questions uh, in the incarnation and in the unfolding of the church. Yeah. Um, but those questions have, those, those answers have to correspond to something. Yeah. They have to correspond to something in uh, the human constitution, in the human heart, mm-hmm. um, that the kids have to discover for themselves and make their own. Yeah. Right. So in a sense, by giving them their question, you know, and presenting them in a way with the history of, of answering it, and with trying to think philosophically about that, you know, we trust in the goodness uh, and the beauty of truth that it will win out and be and, and be the most compelling and, and, and decisive thing. Learning to do that artfully from a, as a pedagogical matter, you know, in other words, um, being a skilled uh, uh, teacher, one who is able to lead students um, or better to, to capacitate students to lead themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, is an extraordinary challenging thing to achieve. So one of the things that SJI has been at the high school level uh, has been really great about, I think, is developing teachers. Mm. I mean, the school prides itself on being a a place for teachers to perfect their craft and to learn um, uh, the the mode of bringing, actualizing this in kids. Yeah. Yeah. And um, th- that's definitely a part of it. And a, and a kind of reactionary imposition um, does not achieve that. Right. right. I agree with you. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, one last question. I mean, we could go on for weeks, actually, but <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll make this manageable. But, um, you know, I think my, my suspicion would be that the kids who come to St. Jerome's are already at kind of an advantage because their parents are choosing this and probably a lot of them are faithful Catholics who want this kind of um, education for their children. And so my fear is that we have something that's so good, but it becomes almost, almost elitist in a sense where it's like, well, we have this and then the masses are over here. You know, I have um, my, my older sister works in public education and, and so many of the students who, who go to public school, they come in already at a disadvantage. We know they're not reading at home, their parents aren't super involved in their education. And like, I don't want to further stratify. Yeah, I don't want it to become like the haves and the have nots where it's like, sure. you know, so how do we, I don't know, maybe bring this into a sense of mission where we're not just keeping it to ourselves and, and we're, we're sharing it and we're allowing others to share in this, even if they don't have that advantaged upbringing of like, being in a, a you know a Catholic home where they they are, they're already thinking about these things even before they go into pre-K. Right, that's a great question, um, and I am 
entirely sympathetic uh, to the worry that underlies it, as is the, the school. I mean, obviously, um, there, there's several things that I, probably we need to get on the table in trying to answer it. Um, obviously, there has to be a certain degree of buy-in from a family and from a student, right, for this to work for them yeah. and for them to discover that uh, uh, at the same time, there's the other thing that has to, to, to be um, placed on the table, um, is that there also has to be space uh, in the, the if, if we're allowing children to make these questions their own, um, there has to be space for them to um, test, evaluate, rest with uncertainty over those questions, um, fail. Yeah. Um, so those are two things that have to be kept in view at the outset. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the things that kind of fell to me in the early days of, of, of St. Jerome Academy, um, as I mentioned earlier, was going to families who had entered the school under a different set of expectations. Right. Families who didn't necessarily come from the kinds of backgrounds uh, that you've described, you know, who's, who weren't necessarily from big Catholic families of eight children who had been homeschooling, whose parents were academics, who, you know, were, um, you know, but might come from um, uh, broken homes, economically disadvantaged uh, homes, um, different ethnic backgrounds and what have you. Um, and, um help them to see or persuade them. I don't want to make it sound like, I, you know, um, but invite them to, 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 to see that um, this really was what they wanted for their own children. Yeah. Yeah. Right. First of all, I mean, the idea that, uh, that um, to receive a culture, um, to learn to love what is beautiful and excellent, uh, to seek truth is, um, you know, privileged only for, you know, um, white upper middle class, uh, you know that that would seem to me to be uh, itself a kind of racist assumption, mm-hmm. right? And a, and a and a classist assumption. Mm-hmm. You know the idea that a, 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 that beauty beauty has to be for everyone, right? Right. Right. Truth is for everyone. Yeah. So you know if if you buy into that proposition, right? Not even knowing fully what you're saying yes to. Yeah. Um, we can work with you. Mm-hmm. Right, but there has to be a certain opening to that. Yeah. Right. So the you know the the point of contact of 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 creating a beautiful picture so that people can from different backgrounds can say yes, this is what we want, even not knowing fully what we're saying yes to. You know, if there's that opening, um, uh, it seems to me that we we can work with anyone. Yeah. And in fact, you know, one of the nice things about SJI has been uh, they still represent a much broader cross section of of economic, uh, uh, racial, um, a, a bigger cross section of of society A than you would imagine, and B than many other schools do. Right. Um, you know, a second thing I would say is is that in in, in a school like S, in SJI in particular, you know, if you have that opening. Uh, and that willingness to, to to say yes to this, you're actually then well suited um, to succeed in the school because this, you know, the the the, the degree of individual attention you receive from teachers in this approach, mm-hmm. you know, the degree of individual mentoring um, of uh, of individual concern is actually greater than a more sort of factory like um, education. Um, so. That in itself might not be a sufficient um, answer to your question as to how to you know avoid these kind of pitfalls, but right. I, I hope it, it at least recognizes an awareness of that the the, the vulnerability of this kind of education to that problem uh, and ways that um, uh, we attempt to address it. I think with pretty decent success so far. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. Um, but yeah, I think it, I mean I think it's an important question that as Catholics, we have to keep at the forefront of our mind because, you know, a hundred years ago, there were Catholic schools, you know, there were religious orders and Catholic schools set up specifically for the poor, you know, whether for Native American families or for, you know, children of former slaves, things like that. And so 
nowadays there's been this sort of elitization of Catholic schools where there's so much money and it's the richest families. And it's like, you know, I, I don't want truth and goodness to be just for the rich. I want it to be for everybody. Right. And right. I don't know well, how to make I, it universal or affordable, but it, it's, it has to be at least a, a thing at the forefront of our minds. I think, I mean, part of that is driven, you know, not um, by greed or by elitism, but by the collapse of religious life. Yeah. Right. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and there's been plenty of, of, of thought that perhaps um, though those educational endeavors were very obviously an expression of, of uh, the religious mission of many of the orders that undertook them, mm-hmm. that maybe as an economic arrangement, it wasn't entirely fair to the workforce, um, <laughs> at, you know, at, 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 at the time. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a massive um, group of people who, who uh, could undertake this work yeah. for, um, for very little, right, um, right. you know, the fact of the matter is that that situation no longer exists, and it does cost. Yeah, it does, uh, it does. to um, to operate a school. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, I think our schools have done a good job of trying to defray those costs as much as possible, and to keep um, uh, as a form of private education, keep it as affordable as one can reasonably hope for in a city like Washington. Sure. Um, but it's not a tension that we don't feel, and a problem that we don't feel. But, you know, you've also got to pay, you know, you've got to give teachers a living wage in a, right. in, a, in a place that's very, very difficult and very, very expensive to live. Absolutely. You know, many of whom are Catholics who are trying to, you know, follow the teachings of the church and, you know, may have large young families of their own that they right. have to support. I mean, it's a different, it's, it's, it's a different arrangement. Yeah. You know, so what you have to do is, is, is um, and, and most of the schools that I know of, frankly, aren't simply, and certainly ours aren't, a wash in money. It's not like, you know, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, you have a beautiful vision and then the, 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 the nuts and bolts are held together by duct tape, yep. <laughs> you know, and bubble gum. And, and you've experienced this yourself, yeah. I know. I'm sure, you know, Riken is very much the same way, though it's a, a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I think needs to, needs to happen is that, um, and, that, and this is part of the cultural assessment that the contemporary church um, I hope is will inevitably have to undergo as the church's place and the culture becomes more um, fraught is that the viability in the future of the church in this country uh, depends upon the viability of and, and, and the vitality of Catholic education. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this, this has to be a, a priority in giving mm-hmm. um, for people who are, 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 uh, for Catholic philanthropists who are looking to have an impact absolutely, um, so that we can create scholarships so we can keep tuition down and create scholarships for, um, and financial aid for, for families that need it. Um, all of that uh, uh, needs to proceed at a much more advanced and accelerated level than is, than is presently the case, you know, um, uh, and that, and that's a work for everyone. It seems to me, regardless of which method or system um, you're you're employing in tempting to to keep these schools going. But um, but I agree with you. I mean, if we can make it and keep it, uh, keep it in, and and make it more affordable um, in principle, uh, so that it's a viable option for people of different backgrounds, there is no reason in principle. In fact, there's every reason uh, to think to the contrary that. Um, this kind of education um, provides an opportunity for disadvantaged kids that they wouldn't otherwise receive yeah. and that they are entitled to. Right. That, you know, poor kids are entitled to beauty, beauty too. Right. Poor kids are entitled to great literature. Poor kids are entitled to understanding. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, hopefully as more people are educated in this way, they take that sense of mission, they go out into the world, and maybe they get involved in, public education or politics or areas where they can have an influence to, you know, bring this more so to the masses and, and not, you know, have it be this, this buried treasure, I guess. Yeah. Although I, I, I do think, you know, part of the context in which we're operating is one of, um, sadly, as we were suggesting before, it seems to be at least, maybe something will come along and turn it around. Um, <laughs> But seems to be one of cultural fragmentation, right? Yeah, right, and and, and ideological polarization. Sure, yeah, um, and the loss of uh, social cohesion. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, you know, in the gospel, there are those who who turn away. Yeah, 
And under these conditions, it seems um, uh, you know inevitable that people will conclude that, some, that, that there will be a, a portion of the population inevitably that concludes that this isn't for them. Yeah. And if you're not, if you don't have the kind of opening we were talking about before, then you know, at one level, subjectively speaking, maybe it isn't for you. It's not going to work for you, even though what we think, what we have, we think, what we have to offer, we think. Would, would 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 help everyone right uh, and that just, that seems to be part of of you know the, the the challenge of the gospel right it's just recognizing that um it's not always accepted yeah yeah and if you try to force it it just becomes indoctrination and then it's not converting right. part anyways right yeah wow well this has been really an engaging and enlightening conversation and and I thank you for giving me almost 2 hours of your time to to oh, explore. Oh well it's the sign of a good conversation and a good interviewer and of how much I enjoyed it that I've completely lost track of the yeah. time. Has it really been that long? It has been um, almost 2 hours, yeah. <laughs> no wonder I'm hungry. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, right? it's it's it's, it's less time. But no, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, Mary Rose. It's a pleasure to meet you. Um it's been a a, a delightful conversation. I wish you well with your 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 podcast and your work at at St. Mary's and uh, please do keep in touch. I'd be be happy to talk again sometime. Oh, good. Well, again, thank you so much. and, And I hope you have a great rest of your rest of your summer as well. Thank you. You as well. 